This week on the Veterinary Viewfinder, follow your dreams. How would you like to be a veterinarian who sails around the world? This week on Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And one of the tough topics that we all must confront at some time in our life is, are we following our dreams? And what does that dream look like? And how do we actually find fulfillment and meaning following that dream? Well, this week, we've got a veterinarian who is not only following her dream, but she is helping a wide variety of exotic animals all over the world. And she is coming to us live from somewhere off the coast of Nicaragua. But before we introduce you to our special guest, as always, I am one of your hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And this week, guys, I am so pleased to meet with you, one of my favorite people on YouTube, and that is Dr. Sheridan Laith. And she is all the way from Australia, but she's actually on a 37-foot aluminum sailing vessel. That's a sailboat to us Americans. And she is off the coast of Nicaragua and she's been all over the Caribbean. And if you haven't checked out her YouTube channel, you got to check it out, which we're going to get to vet tales. It's amazing. Just beautiful scenery, but she's helped so many different animals. I'm so thrilled that you're here, Dr. Shetty. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Shetty, tell us where you are and what do you see outside just so we can share the dream. Well, I'm currently anchored off a surf beach in uh, Nicaragua on the Pacific coast. Um, it's low tide, so the waves haven't picked up yet, but at high tide, we've got waves kind of crashing all around the boat. And it's the Papagayo season, which means it's very, very windy, but it's a really beautiful coastline here. Lots of cliffs, um, beautiful white sandy beaches. And yeah, it's a very nice place to be. Wow. Tell us where you just came from because you did some pretty cool stuff here the past couple of months. Yeah, that's right. So um, I just sailed up from Costa Rica and basically just um, heading north slowly but surely helping animals along the way. Now you're from Australia, correct? You grew up there, you were born there? Yeah, that's right. I grew up in a uh, very small town of about 500 people on the beach in Queensland, Australia. Nice. Now, did you grow up surfing? Uh, the waves were pretty far and few between there. So I've really only um, been surfing properly for the last kind of year since being around the waves of Costa Rica. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I am here on coastal North Carolina and the waves are few and far between too. But, you know, we love it anyway when it's just two foot sloppy. You know, you, you got to do that. So you grew up. Did you always want to be a veterinarian? I did. Ever since I was um, a very little girl, I used to rescue frogs and magpies and, you know, all kinds of things out of the backyard. <laughs> so. But seriously, from a little age, you said, you know, I want to be that animal doctor. Like, you know, because we, we always ask our guests that. And has that been your dream? Yes. Um, I think mom has on video me telling her I wanted to be able to ride a bicycle when I grew up when I was about three. And then from about <laughs> I, four onwards, I started saying I wanted to be a vet. <laughs> that is so amazing. Tell us a little bit about what it takes to become a veterinarian in Australia. Um, so I guess the first thing is obviously getting um, good grades in the sciences, maths, English through high school. Um, and in Australia, they also um, really consider, I guess, your application, things you've done outside of school. So I did um, wildlife care uh, and had volunteered at veterinary clinics and things like that. And the veterinary schooling is a little different to the States in that um, we finish high school when we're 17. I just turned 17 when I went to university and I graduated at 22 because it was only a um, five-year degree. So 
right. it kind of goes pretty quickly. <laughs> right. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up is we do a lot of episodes where we talk about student debt and, you know, we've offered a lot of different proposals and alternative pathways. And the 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 UK and Australian version is is expedited. And so like Sheridan just said, she's she was graduate uh, veterinarian at age 22, which actually helps you save money on education for sure. Definitely. And we do a lot of, I guess, on-job learning then with that first job where, um, you know, the clinics know taking us on that we're new graduates and we, you know, still have a lot to learn and you do a lot of growing in that stage. Wow. Okay. So Becky, I know you're having some uh, difficulty today. Becky is actually joining us from a parking lot from a parked car. So we're, we're actually doing something from the coast of Nicaragua from a parking lot of a dentist and of course from our studio here. So Becky, <laughs> what would you like to ask uh, Dr. Shetty? Dr. Shetty, she is asking, uh, what's it like when you graduate young like that and uh, you're working with the veterinary technicians? What's it like? Uh, what, what are veterinary technicians like in Australia? Well, it's, it is definitely a bit scary being a 22-year-old veterinarian. I um, also look younger than I am, so I would often go into a consultation and, you know, would do you know, a 10 minute consult. And then the people would ask me, well, when's the veterinarian coming in? And I was like, oh, I am the veterinarian. (laughs) So that was sometimes hard. And I also worked in a really uh, rural area of Australia with a predominantly retiree population. And um, it meant I probably didn't get quite as much support from my bosses as some of my friends did in larger cities. And I did a lot of soul charge. So I definitely grew up as a veterinarian very quickly and was, um, doing, you know, after hours, soul charge after only three months of graduation and doing, you know, foreign body removals with me and one veterinary nurse. And um, the veterinary nurses that I worked with, um, we actually only just recently started doing veterinary technician degrees in Australia these last few years. So when I graduated, um, we had veterinary nurses who do a TAFE degree. And a lot of the nurses I worked with weren't were either not qualified or becoming qualified. So for the most part, um, they were good with helping with blood draws and holding animals and um, things like that. But we actually monitored our own anesthetics, um, you know, took all the blood ourselves, put animals on drips ourselves, things like that. So generally, generally, um, you know, after hours wise, I would be kind of anesthetizing an animal almost solo a lot of the time and things like right, that. So right. it was pretty, it was pretty intense at times. <laughs> you know, and, and Sheridan, that's a lot like my experience. When I graduated, I graduated a little young as well, but, and I started a clinic almost immediately after vet school. So I was doing those late night emergencies like you described, but you know, it's almost the opposite in the United States these days. The young graduates are quite frankly, often apprehensive about doing surgeries. What do you think gave you that confidence to go and, you know, just tackle a foreign body or a fracture? I think um, most of it was kind of not having a choice. Um, Where we were, the nearest specialist center is around seven hours away. So um, referral was really not an option. Um, My boss was, um, he was a nice guy, but he was nearing the end of his career and was a little over it. So um, I really only called him after hours if I really, really needed to. (laughs) So I, um, you know, I would just, um, yeah, kind of, get in there and do it. Um, definitely in the early stages for foreign bodies and things, I would give them a call and, you know, they would come in and watch me do surgery and things, but probably after about six months, I was doing most things on my own. So, um, I love that. I love that. And again, if you're one of those young veterinarians out there and, and I know you're intimidated by a lot of these surgeries and look, we all were, I mean, Sheridan's no different than Ernie was 30 years ago, but 
at some point, you know, you just have to get that self-confidence and go for it. And it's great to have good mentorship. It's great to have guidance. But at the end of the day, you know, there's really no teacher like experience. And Sheridan, it sounds like you certainly got your fair share of experience. Yeah, definitely. And and one thing my first boss said to me that was kind of, I guess, helped me was, you know, I wasn't afraid of doing ovarian hysterectomies. And he was like, well, you can already, you know, you can already remove an abdominal organ. So how hard can it be to do a foreign body surgery? And once I kind of got that in my head, I realized in reality, you know, removing a corn cob from an intestine is actually easier than doing a spay if you, you know, if you approach it in the correct way. Um, and probably less risky. So, you know, I, it's, I um, totally agree. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. It's one of those things that we we talk about a lot here in the United States and people just, yeah. So, so aside from that, so now you're out in the bush and you're doing your first year or two. How long were you actually sort of in this remote location in Australia? Um, I worked there for two years and I really focused on developing the exotic side of the practice while I was there. So um, I would have people come from you know, 300 kilometers away to see me as a new graduate with their wow. expensive breeding macaws and African greys and right. things because there was just nobody else around. So right. um, I really enjoyed the two years there. And then I moved on uh, down to Adelaide to work as a wildlife veterinarian at a new hospital um, in Adelaide, which was really cool as well. And, and by this time, you're really fulfilling your passion because you mentioned early on that you were catching wildlife and working in wildlife situations from early on, from really single digits, it sounds like. Uh, and now you're actually working in Adelaide at a wildlife sanctuary. Yeah, that's right. And it, it definitely was a dream of mine to work with wildlife. And in particular, I really enjoy uh, working in charitable organizations as well. So it was really nice to be able to, I guess, treat animals um, not based on the owner's income, you know, just being able to make good medical decisions um, purely based on the animal's welfare. Wow, that seems so interesting. So it's it sounds like the role of the vet tech is, you know, growing over there. So how are they incorporated in what you're doing now at the sanctuary? The support staff in Adelaide were really, really good. Um, basically, the wildlife hospital was an extension of um, four gold standard small animal clinics. So um, we had nurses rotating and veterinary technicians rotating out of um, the larger hospitals. And so those nurses were very well trained in surgery, um, you know, doing triage, providing emergency treatment without a veterinarian present. And it really made a big difference in the wildlife hospital because we could get a lot of cases in. And we were also very lucky to employ an American veterinary technician at one point um, as well. And she was really, really great. Um, like I was saying, the veterinary technician course is still very new in Australia, and I think they've only graduated a few years. So um, even when I was in Adelaide, it wasn't, we didn't have, we had, uh, I guess, higher qualified nurses, but not veterinary technicians. And having uh, Bernadette come from the States, seeing the level of which um, she could provide care was really, really amazing. She um, was able to provide emergency treatment at a similar level to a veterinarian. And that was just a really cool thing um, for me to experience and see what nurses are capable of. Right. It, it's amazing too. And, and, you know, Sheridan, it just makes our job easier as veterinarians. So, I, you know, that's, and we talk about that a lot on this podcast. Now, at what point did the seed of, I want to travel around the world in a sailboat and do a kind of what I'm doing now, when did that start to take shape? Well, it actually uh, kind of started with a, um, I, after I worked in Adelaide, I um, got asked to work in China for Animals Asia, uh, rescuing a Asiatic black bears from bile farms. Sure. 
Um, and it was, you know, pretty scary. I kind of didn't know whether I should take the job. Um, I'd never been to China and you know, all of that, but I kind of took the leap of faith and went and, um, working there was just very inspirational because, um, I worked with a, the founder of, um, Animals Asia, Jill Robinson, who I guess went to China 20 years ago and saw the way bears were treated in bear bar farms and just kind right. of decided she would do something about it and moved from the UK to China and just started rescuing bears. And um, I guess it just kind of made me realize that if you're passionate about something and you want to try and change the world and you want to try live a dream that might seem even quite impossible, you know, you can do it. And she's made such a big difference in the countries um, that, that farm bears. And it's, yeah, it was a really great experience for me to see somebody, um, I guess, achieving a dream like that. How long did you wind up doing that? That's a tough gig. Yeah, I was there um, just over 18 months. And the reason, I guess, that helped spark me wanted to, um, to kind of take the move and take the leap with sailing was I really, really loved the job there. But um, the emotional toll it took on me was just too high. It was We were exposed to some pretty extreme things. And the, um, the bears actually lived at the sanctuary with us. And so some of them had been there, you know, 15 years. And so the workers that had been there for that long, you know, they weren't treated like pets, but you knew, you know, we, we right. could identify each individual out of the 200 bears just by sight, seeing them out, you know, in the, in their paddocks roaming. And we'd be like, oh, that's that bear, that's that bear. So right. Right. when they would then develop liver cancer or their arthritis from being kept in a tiny cage would be so bad that we'd have to make, you know, quality of life decisions, things like that. It, it just really took a very heavy emotional toll on me. Yep. Yep. And if mm. you've ever done any of this type of work, uh, I shared and we can all relate to that. It's, yeah. it's a tough gig. So mm-hmm. anyway, so at this point you're saying, you know what, I've done what I can do here in China. Uh, yep. I want to get on a sailboat. So how did that actually happen? Like, I mean, that's a bold move. Yeah. And I, uh, I actually had never been on a sailboat before. So, um, yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd grown up at the beach and around, you know, boats, but not, uh, sailboats. So my, um, partner at the time was a mad keen sailor. And I guess we were looking for a way to kind of incorporate, um, you know, I've always loved the ocean and animals. He wanted to sail and we kind of thought, well, this is a way to kind of do both. Um, so again, I took another leap of faith and, uh, decided that, even though I'd never stepped foot on a sailboat, I was sure I could go to live permanently on one. <laughs> so um, found a boat in Panama and caught a flight there and bought the boat. So it, was, it all happened pretty quickly. Wow. <laughs> now, if you're listening, Dr. Bjorn Lee up in Maine, this sounds very familiar. Uh, Dr. Sheridan <laughs> already pulled it off. So I'm, I'm really excited about my, my good friend uh, Bjorn and Jamie Lee, who are about to do the same thing you did, but without all the uh, animal stuff, they're just going to do it as a family. But so, so you get on a plane, you go and buy a boat, but tell us about this boat because, you know, I think many of us have an image of a sailboat in mind, and it's probably not the reality that you're living in right now. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people have the, um, <laughs> you know, the white fancy yacht view of sailboats. Um, so my boat, uh, was pretty cheap for the type of boat it is. Um, and it's a 37 foot boat. So that's about a kind of 11 meters. Um, it's a mono hull. So it just has the one single hull. And basically there's two small bedrooms, cabins, and they're kind of as in, you know, you can't stand up in them. You crawl into them kind of bedrooms. (laughs) Um, and then I have a small kitchen with a 
two burner stove, but only one burner works, um, a little refrigerator <laughs> um, and like a seating area and then a bathroom, but the bathroom has no shower. I only have an outdoor solar shower um, and then a little station that's kind of my study video editing work station. Right. And the back bedroom is currently filled with um, surfboards and veterinary yes. surgery, surgery gear. So it's, uh, it's <laughs> well, and before we get into what you're doing, so if you're not following her on YouTube, it's Vet Tales Chuffed Sailing, right? Is that right? It's Vet Tales uh, is what I always look for. Yes, Vet Tales Sailing Chuffed. Yep. There we go. Sailing Chuffed. And yep. the boat's name is Chuffed. And maybe just give us the 30 second <laughs> yep. version of why you named it Chuffed. So uh, in like British and Australian slang, chuffed means kind of like happy or pleased. So you can say like, right. oh, I'm really chuffed that, you know, the football team won today and things like that. So, you know, I was so chuffed with having the boat that it kind of seemed like a fitting name. And it's kind of fun because right. nobody knows what it means over here. Right. So. And, and I will tell you this, when I've, when I've recommended your vlog to other people and I say she's on this boat called Chuffed, they instantly think it's a bad thing. Like Chuffed is angry or upset <laughs> yeah. or something. It's like, no, it's, I think it kind of means something different, yeah, uh, at least yeah. in Australia. But, uh, so, so it's filled with veterinary equipment. And I have uh, certainly watched a lot of your videos. And just briefly describe what you've been doing for the past, was it two years now, I think? Yeah, it's just over two years. Um, so I guess my day-to-day -day veterinary work varies greatly depending on uh, where I am and what I'm doing. But I have... Um, basically kind of three spay kits on board, um, suture material, medications, injectable and oral medications. Um, and essentially, um, the main things I'm doing are spay and neuter campaigns um, and vaccination campaigns in rural areas that uh, veterinarians can't normally, I guess, get to. Um, and then I'm also doing quite a lot of wildlife work where I try and work with local wildlife veterinarians um, to help educate them further on treating wildlife, uh, but also just to help them with some more advanced cases. Um, and it's been, yeah, very cool to be exposed to some, um, really exotic animals during, uh, my work here. I've, I helped a caiman with a caiman crocodile with kidney problems, a electrocuted <laughs> sloth, you know, a monkey with, you know, uh, like an outbreak of disease in monkeys in Panama. It's, you know, just all kinds of, um, different things, which has been very cool. So I know we talked a little bit about these spay neuter campaigns and and how you actually do these fairly independently uh, because your schedule isn't always um, set when you end up in these areas. How do you go about organizing them and, and and what's the turnout look like for you? So the organization of the spay and neuter campaigns varies quite a lot depending on the country. Um, Costa Rica, for example, has very strict animal welfare laws, which is great, but it means foreign veterinarians um, have to work with a local veterinarian. So that right. kind of changed how I operated there. But in Panama, things were a little little looser. And basically, I worked under the umbrella of a very large spay and neuter program called Spay Panama. And so on any given weekend with those guys, I could go out with them and we could see up to 500 dogs in a day with nine veterinarians. So it was 500. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Really big group. Uh, and they would have 40 volunteers. It was, they have a really great, great setup. So they helped, I guess, cover me while I went um to the islands in Panama where they just can't sim simply can't go. So it was just me and my partner um, on the boat. And we basically um, went from island to island. There was no real way to reach out in advance because um, although people do have mobile phones there, they basically just have each other's phone numbers and there's no way right, to, right. to get a hold of anybody. So we essentially just rocked up and would tell people what we were doing. 
Um, and often what would happen is um, like one person would come the first day, just one person, because I think they didn't quite believe us that we were going to do it for free. Um, there's right. only one doctor on the 15 Island group. And so there's no veterinarian. Um, and they would kind of be a little guinea pig dog and, and owner where they would come and let right. me do surgery and treat the animal. And then once they realized that it really was free, people started making appointments and basically we had it a local lady where the people would go see her give, um, you know, give their dog's name, the sex, um, and she would book up to 10 a day for me. Um, and then we would just do surgery. So in that Island group over, I think it was around four weeks, we did 75, um, spay and neuters and treated, uh, I think it was around 120 animals with, um, you know, parasite control and different things like that as well. And, and a lot of illnesses, lots of very severe uh, respiratory diseases there. So a lot of doxycycline going around, um, for that and for alichia as well, which is very common. So, um, yeah, it was a really great experience and it is pretty, uh, it can be very disorganized at times, but that's kind of part of it. It, it, you know, it, it can just be a matter of rocking up and hoping everything works out. And then other times, like I'm doing a spay and neuter campaign here in Nicaragua next week. And that was actually organized over two weeks ago and it's all running very smoothly. So it really depends on the country and where we are and how remote it is. Yeah. So those are incredible numbers. And as always, I'm interested in where the support staff come in there. So are you using technicians and, and, and who else do you use in these campaigns to accomplish those kinds of numbers? So with the, um, with the larger campaigns, we do have some trained veterinary nurses, um, but a lot of the volunteers are just, um, you know, lay people from around um, the towns that have been working with these groups for a really long time and have received training uh, so that they know what to do. So certain things like um, in post-op, um, we'll have a lot of kind of really keen, um, young adults doing things like, um, the post-operative pain relief and antibiotic injections, um, tattooing the ears, um, clipping nails, cleaning ears, um, uh, making sure, you know, the surgical site looks good and discharging the animals. Um, and basically, like I said, they receive training from the veterinarians and the trained veterinary nurses, but definitely, um, you know, with that campaign where we had um 500 animals in a day we had the nine veterinarians um three veterinary nurses and the other kind of 30 people were just people who have been helping for a very long time with this organization and we just kind of pair up if there's a new person um to the group they'll pair up with somebody who's been helping for you know the last five years and they will be shaving dogs and um doing the sterile prep for surgery and the vet nurses are kind of floating around, making sure everything's going well, as are the, um, the uh, head veterinarians. They'll be kind of watching over surgery, watching over what everybody's doing and making sure everything's going smoothly. So it's a, it's a pretty um, tight run ship with Spay Panama in particular and, and these bigger organizations. Well, well Shetty, let, let me ask uh, probably an obvious question. I mean, I've, I've been all up and down these coasts uh, as a surfer. I mean, there's some sketchy locales down there. Uh, what about security? I mean, how safe are you? And, and what do you do to make sure you can stay as safe as possible? Yeah, um, definitely some of the areas I've been have been pretty remote um, and what some would call seedy areas of town. Yeah, for <laughs> so, sure. Yeah, so at the islands... Um, for the most part, I've found that being able to speak a little Spanish um, and really just talking to the locals makes a big difference. In Panama City, there was a lot of theft on boats. Um, people would come and steal outboard motors, the dinghies, things like that. 
Sure. And we were once told by one of the local guys that our boat, we didn't have to worry, our boat would never be touched because I treated all the tugboat owners' dogs and I guess nice. word got around that our boat was not to be part of the syndicate. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it, seems, it does seem like meeting the locals makes a really big difference in what happens. And most of the crime in these areas is just petty theft and it's opportunistic because they don't have, you know, they're poor and they don't have money. So um, I have not as of yet come across any violent crime. And um, when there has been theft, it's often drug related and kind of learning the area in terms of there was one town I was in where basically after 8 p.m. you just didn't go out in the town. Um, you know, you'd make sure you're back on your boat and or, or somewhere safe and, right. um, you know, things like that just to keep safe. It's a big world. And often we do lead with fear. We're primed, you know, for fear in the United States and most of Europe, I would argue. But, um, you know, you're you're remarkable in your just confidence and poise and, and you know, you're really brave. So I, I just want to applaud you. I mean, I, I'm sure there are tons of people listening to this podcast and they're going, no way, I could never do that. But I mean, you're literally walking around by yourself. So Dr. Shetty, you know, this is amazing. And, and what you're doing is amazing and, and, and so interesting. But at the top of this episode, and, and before we wrapped up, we talked about following your dreams. And the truth of the matter is, is the majority of veterinarians can't pack up and jump on a sailboat and cruise around the world and do what you're doing. So what's your advice for veterinarians who really do want to follow their dreams, find their happiness, but this isn't really realistic? What's that day-to-day -day advice look like for you on following your dreams and maybe a little bit smaller scale? Yeah, so I, I think um, most of the constraints in terms of following our dreams are constraints and compromises that we put on ourselves. And I think it's really, really important um, to evaluate what really matters to you and then to seek that out. Um, I definitely know for myself that um, I very much got trapped in the, you know, in the normal way of living where you feel like, you know, you have a house and you have cars and you have bills. And so you feel like you have to work 60 hours a week because otherwise you can't afford all those things. And it becomes kind of this cycle where then you have to work to afford the more things that you've bought and then you buy more things and then you have to work more. And it, you know, it can really become kind of this where you think that that's really the only way you can do things. Um, and when I, you know, when I got on the boat, I, I still really don't have a lot of savings. And uh, well, you know, when I got the boat, I didn't either. And it was at some point you've got to stop telling yourself it can't be done or that you have to wait until this and wait until that and just kind of take the leap of faith and do it. Um, and obviously not everybody's going to go out and buy a sailboat and sail around the world, but definitely, um, on a smaller scale too, even just things like, I think veterinarians work way too much. The, now that I work, um, on my own schedule, I usually do probably depending on the week between like 10 and 30 hours a week of veterinary work. And I'm able to dedicate, I guess, all of my care and all of my love and all of my brains to each individual case I see. And I, I feel like I can put so much um, into my cases. And I know when I was working 60 hours a week and getting burnt out, and then I would do 10 more hours of after hours. And I, you know, I was definitely getting compassion fatigue. I was getting just plain old fatigue physically and mentally. Right, right. And I really do think that um, it's really important to evaluate how many hours you need to work and find time to do other things that make you happy, you know, find time to surf, to travel, to spend time with your family. Um, and, you know, I found I would come home so tired that I kind of couldn't really engage with my housemates because I was just so dead mentally. I would kind of just go sit and watch TV, things like that. 
Right. So I think it's really important to make sure you have a really good work-life balance. And that's, I think, a really important first step to help you achieving your dreams. Um, and like I said, to just stop telling yourself that it can't be done and start believing that you can do it and you can work towards these bigger dreams and goals, even if they do seem kind of unattainable. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are our biggest barrier when it comes to finding mm -hmm. these types of, of happiness and success. But let me ask you this too. What do you think the impact, at least in, in the United States, the student debt is outrageous. I mean, you know, we're seeing most students graduate with six figure debt. So that's a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. I've met students with over three hundred thousand dollars in student debt alone, which impacts their ability to sit back and go, well, you know, I'd really like to to focus more on my patients and my own wellness. You know, they're having they have to work 60 hours a week. What yeah. what do you think? I mean, how how do we fix that? I mean, what do you what's your just overall impression as a younger veterinarian who's doing some remarkable things, in my opinion? You know, what do you think the student debt, what's the role that it plays in all of this? Happiness. Yeah, look, I, I am extremely lucky that I went to university in Australia. Um, my student debt is around 35,000 US dollars. And it's a government debt that I only pay off on years that I earn over 35,000 US dollars. And it basically comes out of my pay like tax does. So you right. really don't even notice it going. It's not an accumulative interest debt. It only grows with, um, you know, like, uh, as money changes, it grows kind of thing as, as a dollar becomes more valuable or less valuable, it'll change, but it doesn't actually accumulate. And, you know, that's a, that's a huge relief for me because definitely if, if I was having to pay that loan off at the moment, even as small as it is compared to most American veterinarians loans, it would be really difficult for me. And I have American friends, uh, through vet school, medical school, you know, other science degrees and, their student loans are, are crippling. Um, yeah. And it, you know, it's, it, I get scared for them because as you said, a friend of mine who was working and living in Australia had to move back to the States, even though she didn't want to, because she couldn't actually afford to live in Australia on the wage Australian vets earn and still pay her student debts in the US. She had to go work wow. in a large US city to be able to basically keep going. Um, and that certainly affected her happiness because she loved Australia. She had a partner in Australia. She, you know, she didn't want to go back, but she had no right. choice. So, um, unfortunately I'm not sure that there is a very easy solution, um, other than governmental change and policy changes, yeah, um, right. you know, to help reduce debt for students. And as you said, a big consideration, you know, if I was a, a someone who wanted to be a veterinarian in the States, I would very much be looking into um, other universities outside of the United States because even in Australia paying international student loans, it's still a huge amount less than what um, the loans add up to be in, in the States. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And it's one of those things, I mean, and now in the U.S., uh, Shetty, um, student debt is second in terms of overall debt only to home mortgages. So, I mean, this is a major problem. It's affecting all sectors of our economy and of our society. And, uh, you know, it, it breaks my heart because when we talk about following your dream and following your passions and finding meaning, you know, you have to take into the calculus, how much is this going to cost to get to that? And, yes. and I really think if you're listening today and you're an undergrad and you're considering this as a career, you really, as Shetty just said, you need to say, how much is it going to cost? What are my options? How can I do this most, you know, cost effectively? And 
make sure on the other side of this that you can then afford to live the lifestyle that you want to because Shetty, you nailed it. I mean, this is the part that burns us out really as much or more so than the human uh, relations that we have to, to navigate. Yes, definitely. I could, yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like having a debt like that hanging over my head, especially uh, with what I'm doing. Like I said, I, you know, I don't earn a lot of money now, but I earn enough to keep the boat going and to provide the medical care uh, to the animals that I ha- have been doing. But I certainly would not be earning anywhere near enough to be paying a, you know, $150,000 student debt. So, yeah. Wow, Dr. Shetty, this has all been so interesting. Uh, it has been so great to have you on the show and to hear more about the interesting things that you're doing. Where where can we find you if people are interested in seeing more about your videos, knowing more about what you do? All right. So I have um, quite an extensive array of social media links, as does everybody these days, I guess. Um, so I have a YouTube channel, which helps to... Um, I hope helps inspire other people who watch it that they can follow their dreams and that there's alternative lifestyle options. Um, and it also is how I gain um, funding for the work I do with the animals in Central America. So that is Vet Tales Chuffed Adventures. But if you type Vet Tales Tail Like a Dog, um, Dog's Tail, you will find it on YouTube. And then Instagram and Facebook, I have um, Vet Tales Sailing Chuffed. And I also just have a website that you can go to that links you to all of those things and tells you what I've been up to. And that's www.vettails.com. Yeah. And I will make sure we have all of that in the show notes. I got to tell you, number one, thank you so much for all you're doing to inspire the rest of us. I mean, it is a real pleasure to watch your social media content. You are just amazing in so many ways. And I just couldn't be prouder to call you a colleague. And second of all, thank you for going to great lengths to make this podcast thank happen. You so much I mean, for having a lot me. of times, you know, we we think in America, oh, it's just so easy. You just get online or make a phone call. But she is having to do this from a hot spot in Nicaragua. And as beautiful as that sounds, it's technically challenging. So Shetty, thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys having me and sharing my story. Yeah, well, so whatever you do today, I want you to go and follow her on YouTube, follow her on Instagram and Facebook. Keep up with this amazing, inspirational young veterinarian. Follow her around the world as she pursues not only her dream, but she helps so many animals in need. So again, thank you so much on behalf of the Vet Viewfinder. Dr. Sheridan, you are amazing. That's right. And while you're out there following your dreams, don't forget to follow us on whatever platform you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you happen to use iTunes, it's the best place to rate, review, and don't forget to click to subscribe. Until next time, stay chuffed. Bye. (laughs) Yeah, g'day. (laughs) Well, g'day, everybody, and thank you for listening to me.